him to do the Father's work to please his Father and to do his will. And uh, Jesus made a point of this consistently throughout his life. And in fact, uh, one of the things that you find in the Gospel of John, in particular, early on in the book, Jesus establishes the fact that, in fact, it is his obedience to the Father's will that is the salvation of the world. And we know that. We don't necessarily think of it right away until we consider it in light of uh, Philippians, which says that he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, and that for this reason God highly exalted him and gave him a name that's above every name. So we know that the obedience of Christ to the Father's will is the salvation of the world. It is perfect with the perfect submission to the Father's will. It's not just an example to us, but certainly it is an example to us and the kind of obedience and submission that ought to characterize us. Now I want to look at a second reason why Jesus came. He came for the Father, but he also came for himself. And I want to show you the sense in which the Bible teaches that Jesus came for himself. And I want you to see that tonight. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 2, and uh, we'll read beginning in verse 9 to the end of the chapter. Hebrews 2 and verse 9, these are the words of God. But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church, will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make a reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, thank you that you've given us this opportunity tonight to look in your word to learn from it. I pray that we would just grow in our appreciation for the gospel, uh, for the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf as our substitute, sacrificing himself in our place. I pray that we would see what you were doing in that and that we would uh, look to you by faith, trusting in you and your finished work. 
and the satisfaction that you have given to Christ, to God's righteous demands. I pray that we would enjoy this time in the Word, that all of us would be attentive to what's preached, and that we would delight in it, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so God designated Jesus Christ and ordained him as the one who would come and bear his wrath, absorb his wrath against sin, so that he could forgive sinners and display his love to sinners. This is what was transpiring between the Father and the Son. Jesus Christ was the one God designated to do that, to absorb his wrath and display his love. And those two things are done by the Lord Jesus Christ throughout his life, but especially in his death on the cross. God displayed his love, and Jesus said that he was. He said, in fact, that the very act of sending him to this earth was a full display of his love for the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But the biggest thing, the biggest way that Jesus displayed the love of God was by absorbing the wrath of God against sin. Now, it's, it's one of those things that we struggle with. People commonly, it's, it's today especially, the, probably the most common challenge that you're likely to hear against God, the Father. How can a loving God fill in blank? How can a loving God do this? How can a loving God do that? How can a loving God allow so much pain and so much sorrow and so much evil in the world? How can a loving God throw people into hell for eternity? But God hates sin. And God's hatred for sin is not, you know, I know that the, the uh, mantra is hate the sin and love the sinner. There's, of course, some truth to that, but it's not 100% universally true. God throws the sinner in hell. He does throw the sinner in hell. Make no mistake about that. All right? We, as people, ought to have the ability to recognize, number one, the image of God that is in every person around us. That they are image bearers of God. And because we recognize that, we should recognize their dignity as a person, their value as a person. But God hates sin because of the way it assaults his image and defaces that image. God hates it because of its destructive nature against what he created for fellowship with himself. But those who love sin and embrace sin and defend sin and, and refuse to give up their sin uh, for God's sake will face the wrath of God. So I say again that the very act of sending Jesus to this world was a wonderful display of love, first of all, because 
Um, God is angry with the wicked every day. And again, this is not, this is contradicting the hate the sin, love the sinner kind of thing. God is angry with the wicked, not just their wickedness, but with the wicked every day. He's angry with them. But where God displayed his love was by sending his son to absorb that wrath, really, we could say unjustly, so that God could be just in dealing with our sins, he was unjust with his own son. But that injustice against his son was agreed upon between the father and the son because the son said, I delight to do thy will because the Son also desired to be the Savior of the world and recognized that, and you know, I'm breaking it down and analyzing how all this happened, but there's a clear recognition on the part of the Son that it was necessary for him to bear God's wrath so that sinners could be saved and pardoned and set free and forgiven and spend eternity with God reconciled to the Father this is this is the love of God displayed by making this glorious provision so <clears throat> Jesus came so that God could be just in punishing sin and the justifier of those that believe so that the wrath of God could be absorbed and the love of God could be displayed but Jesus also came for himself because Jesus in order to be the Savior there were several things that Jesus needed to do and Jesus needed to experience now I use the word need and I want to be clear how I'm using that word because there's nothing no obligation that God has ever placed under and there is no necessity that God ever experiences other than what he obligates himself to or what needs he takes upon himself and so the sense in which Jesus needed to do specific things so that he could be our savior was not because there was something lacking in Jesus Christ, something that was missing, some imperfection that needed to be uh, cared for or taken care of. The need was all of his own design, all of his own making. <clears throat> Yet it was impossible and we know this, it was impossible for Jesus to skip past the incarnation. It was impossible for Jesus not only to skip past the incarnation as if that were negotiable, it also was impossible for Jesus to skip past or bypass the cross. So these are necessities but not necessities that are caused by some deficiency in Christ. Rather, they are necessities 
that are laid upon himself by his own glorious plan for our salvation. Now we know that the incarnation and the crucifixion were non-negotiables. These were not things that they could dispatch with. God the Father, God the Son could skip over or, or, or do without at all. Jesus became a man because according to God's decree, a man must pay for man's sin. Okay? He became a man then for our sake. But wait a second. Isn't the theme of the message that Jesus came for himself? Yes. But the two tie together here. He became a man for his own sake as well. Our text explains it. If you look again at verse 14, that through death, okay, so verse 14 is explaining, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. Now here's the reason. That through death, he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. When Jesus came to this world, he had us in mind, but that's not all he had in mind. Right? He also had in mind his enemy and ours, the devil. He had the devil in mind. We know that the death of Jesus was necessary so that sin could be punished without sinners being destroyed. But we must not forget that we also have an enemy who must be destroyed. Jesus could destroy the devil with one little word, and in the end, we know that he will. But Hebrews 2.14 tells us that Jesus died to destroy him that had the power of death. Okay, so his death was in order to destroy the devil. He destroyed the devil by his death. By his death. The death of Christ is the death of Satan. And the death of death, too. So then part of his purpose was to rescue sinners, and part was to destroy Satan. And maybe you notice that Satan is not yet destroyed, even though the Bible says that Jesus destroyed Satan through death. He died and Satan was destroyed through death. What does that mean then? John Stott describes it as the dilemma between the already and the not yet. Already, Satan is defeated, Satan is broken. Not yet has he been finally and ultimately destroyed. Uh, so that's, that's one way of understanding it. Now, Darren, you're watching a football game, you know, and it's the third quarter, and your team is down by two touchdowns, and uh, they can't move the ball, and then the other team scores another touchdown right before the end of the third quarter, and if you're smart like me, you just turn it off. Because why, why endure the pain, 
and sorrow and agony of watching a fruitless fourth quarter in which my team is going to lose anyway, right? Now that's kind of like we're, we're going into the fourth quarter, but the enemy is already trounced. It's not exactly that. He's been dealt a death blow. He's dying. Now he's going to make everyone pay while he's dying. All right? But he is dying. Uh, and that is a certainty. Because Jesus died, the death of Christ is the death of Satan. There is coming a day when Satan and death and hell will all be cast into the lake of fire. We are assured of this in the Word of God. Um, but not just, we're not called on just to rely on the promise that God has made. We also know that the death of Christ. Uh, has accomplished this. In the meantime, Jesus has already defeated and disarmed Satan. And the most important way he's done this is by taking away, stripping Satan of the power of death. So that Satan now is he's a lion, and he's a roaring lion, but he's a toothless lion as well. Alright? And this is something else that the Bible teaches. God has stripped away from him the power of death. People, of course, still die. Death is still active in our world. But for the believer, death releases us out of Satan's reach, really, out of his clutches and into the arms of God. Death has no power over us. Death has, in fact, become God's servant the means that God uses still to translate us from this life into eternal life, into the life that is to come. So death is the means that we have of passing from this life into the next. But that, again, is because of what Jesus Christ did. Death has no power over us. Guilt made death a potent weapon against us. And so long as guilt was active, death was powerful against us. Right? Jesus extends forgiveness through his death, and his death neutered guilt. It, it took, it's not that we don't have guilt for our sin. Of course, we are guilty. As sinners, we are guilty. Absolutely. And we bear the guilt of our sin. And in some cases, we feel the guilt of our sin. Sometimes we feel the guilt of our sin. And some sins we feel the guilt of for a long time. But <clears throat> that guilt is neutered. That guilt is powerless. You understand if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have received Christ and you are resting in Him for your salvation, that the guilt that you feel will die when you die. You will not carry it into eternity. And not only that, but that guilt that you feel, <coughs> pardon me, will not affect your eternity at all. Not at all. It will die with you, and it will die toothless and powerless. 
In fact, for a believer, your, your guilt, your guilt is like, oh, I mean, I don't want to be crass, but, but it's like if you were the caretaker for someone who is really old and helpless, and they're alive because you feed them, and you shelter them, and you care for them. That's it. That's your guilt, right there. Your guilt, whatever life your guilt still has, it has because you are propping it up. Because you're feeding it, you're clothing it, you're caring for it, you're nurturing it. Okay, because Jesus Christ has taken away your sin. And guilt is the way you feel about your sin. So Jesus Christ took the sin, took the penalty for the sin, so that all that is left for you is the guilt. Satan has been robbed of the power of guilt. Are you guilty? Yes. Your sin, though, was laid on Jesus Christ, and he bore the punishment and isn't guilt just the fear that we feel, the sense of, I think, kind of a mixture of fear and shame that we feel for what we did? But what we did was laid on Christ. Satan cannot wield it against us. So he does. He does, right? He loves to bring it back up. And he loves to remind you of it and keep it fresh in your mind and stab you with it, stick you with it whenever he can. But I'm saying to you that Satan can only wield your guilt against you as long as you live. Once you die, you are out of his reach. He cannot do that anymore if you have been born again. He cannot do that anymore. Guilt made death a potent weapon against us but Jesus, through his death, extends forgiveness to us, which neutered that guilt, stripped away all of its power to oppress you and to hound you and to haunt you. Without the power to wield guilt against us, Satan becomes toothless. So, look, this is what Satan can do. While you are in this life, he can tempt you, he can stumble you, he can hurt you, he can deceive you. He can even kill you if God allows it. But that's it. See, that's the thing. I think Satan knows this too. If you're a believer, if, if, the, if he does the worst thing to you that he could do, he kills you. He doesn't get to oppress you anymore. At that point, it's all over. The game is over. That's it. The moment we die, Satan loses. In that moment. Because he's made accusations and he's slandered us and he's reminded us of past sins and past faults and he's haunted us and hounded us and stalked us and oppressed us and then we die. And then we're out of his reach. Just like that. It's, it has to be, you know, I've said it before. 
that this is one of the um, beautiful ironies of the gospel that God, instead of just trouncing Satan, just crushing him, God lets him suffer defeat after defeat after defeat after defeat after defeat. Okay? Aren't you glad, by the way, that he loses when it comes to you, too? Isn't that good? And he's going to tempt you, he's going to keep tempting you. He's not going to when say, well, you know, now that Pastor Malonek's preaching that message, I'm not going to tempt him anymore. No, no, he's going to come for you. He's laying traps for you even now. And he's going to keep doing that and harassing you throughout your life. But in the end, he loses. He can accuse you all the way up until you stand before the Lord. And then it's over. Game over. And you win because of Jesus Christ. <coughs> so Satan does all of this stuff. The Bible says the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8 and verse 1. Wonderful, precious verse for the believer. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. But here's the part that I want to get to, because you might be thinking, Pastor, it seems like you've strayed a long way from what you said you were going to talk about. Here's the best part. It was a man, the man from Nazareth, Jesus, the carpenter's son. He's the one who defeated Satan. Jesus became a man for himself so that when he defeated Satan, it would be as a man. We all know that God can do it, right? But Jesus was intent on defeating Satan as a man. Because Satan, where he chose as the point of his assault against God, he chose man, right? That part of God's creation, he chose. The part that God had designed, especially for his love. The part that God had prepared everything else in the world for, for our happiness and for our joy. And Satan recognized the love, the delight that God had in us as his creation, made in his image. And God, and Satan decided, to assault that. It's typical of someone who really hates you, that they do what they do, uh, not because they want what you have, but because they don't want you to have it. And they recognize that you love it, that you want it, and so they in, are intent on keeping you from having that. And that's how Satan, the malice that Satan has towards God, But God said, I'm not going to give him that satisfaction. I'm going to show them my love, and I'm going to give them back, bring them back to me. And I'm going to do it not as God just going in and cuffing Satan and taking back what is mine. I'm going to send another man 
And Satan is going to do everything in his power to get that man to fall. And he will not succeed. And that man will destroy Satan. I want to elaborate on that just a little bit more. Because you weren't thinking I was done yet. Were you? Okay, good. <clears throat> Next week is the uh, one hour service, all right? One hour start to finish. Not this week, all right? So you got you to gotta just wait until Christmas, kids. All right, why did Jesus come? He entered into our world as one of us so that he could save us, but also so that he might be glorified in his death and resurrection so that he might be loved by us. It's not just to display his love for us, but that we would love him. So Jesus came that he might enter into our world. That's the first thing. He was made like his people. Apart from a true incarnation, there is no true atonement. And so Hebrews 2.14 says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part in the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. And Hebrews 2.17, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. This is really the ultimate sympathy, if you will. Sympathy involves entering into the world of pain that someone else is experiencing. And Jesus showed the ultimate sympathy by entering into our painful experience. Now Jesus could not do that if he came as God. Because he would not be touched by the feelings that we have. But remember that Jesus experienced in his life every kind of pain. Rejection, hatred, privation, poverty, right? Betrayal, disappointment, every kind of pain that men ever experience, not to mention torture of the cross, the physical pain of that. Every painful experience that you and I could ever imagine, Jesus experienced for our sake. Had he experienced it as God, he would have been above it, above feeling it. But he experienced it as a man. And he did that intentionally. Again, because the point was that Jesus would enter into our world. The second Adam came like the first Adam. And yet, unlike the first Adam, Jesus was like the first Adam in that he became fully a man and came in a state of innocence. He entered our world as a baby. So he came in that same innocence as Adam. I, I have to think that there was even more to it with Jesus because 
Adam probably, when he was created, probably was a teenager, probably 14, 15 years old, maybe, maybe a little bit older than that, but I mean very young man when he was created, all right? Um, so Adam had the benefit of being aware of what was happening, even in the garden when, when the servant tempted Eve. He was not a naive infant or baby. Most of our children, I mean most, I guess, all of our children, let me rephrase that, all of our children sin before they are really, I, want, I don't want to make excuses for them, but I mean, I think they know what they're doing, but they don't know enough to stop themselves from doing it, just that their fallen nature takes over very quickly. And their self-centeredness begins to show itself very quickly, very early in their life, right? But Jesus grew through that and did not sin. That's the amazing thing there. And this is how Jesus is unlike the first Adam. He is like the first Adam in that he's fully man and he was created, he began his life innocent, in a state of innocence. But he was unlike the first Adam in that he alone had the power throughout his life to overcome sin. He never stumbled. He never fell into sin. Never did. That's amazing when you think about that. Having raised kids when they were little babies, I saw that. I saw that rebellion in their heart, I saw it, I heard it, uh, I experienced it on every level of their growing up. There was no question in my mind that I was raising a bunch of little sinners. No doubt about that. But not Jesus. He proved that man could keep God's law and he proved it not just in the face of his own innate nature, but he also proved it in the face of painful testing and temptation. The Bible describes for us the temptations that Jesus Christ faced from the master tempter. I don't know about any of you, but the things that have tempted me have always been things, right? I have never had Satan come and pay me a visit and try to coax me into sinning. I would have to think of all the temptations a person might face, that that would have to be the most powerful of all and the most painful to resist. But that's the point that the Bible is making here. <clears throat> Jesus had the power to overcome temptation. Jesus was an image bearer like the first Adam, but did not deface that image or ruin that image by sin. But in order to save us, it was also necessary that he die. And his death would be meaningless if he died as the perfect man, 
untarnished by the fall. So Jesus made himself even more of what we are, not by falling into sin himself, but by taking our sins upon himself and dying in those sins. By dying, Jesus brought about the death of fallen men so that a new man could be created. Christ did not come to earth simply to be our moral teacher. If that were his only mission, he could have come as he did in former times as the angel of the Lord without our flesh and blood to encumber him. Instead, he had to become like us so he could raise us up to be like him. So said Joel Eaton. Surely we see in this the friend who sticks closer than a brother. Out of pity, out of love, out of compassion for us, Jesus entered into our condition so he could lift us out of it. He intended to restore what had been ruined in the fall. He could have done it as God, yes. He chose to do it as man so he could display his glory more vividly. Jesus became one of us so that he could display not only his power, but also his infinite beauty and worth. The second thing is that he came that he might experience suffering. In fact, the Bible tells us that Jesus learned obedience through suffering. That's an interesting thing. Jesus learned obedience through suffering. Now, you and I also learned obedience through suffering, but it was in a very different sense than Jesus learned obedience through suffering. All right? Uh, let me explain it to you. <clears throat> the Bible in Hebrews 5 and verse 8 says this. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Now, remember that Paul in Philippians 2 describes the death of Christ in terms of obedience, right? That he became obedient unto death. So the, de the obedience that Jesus Christ was called upon to fulfill was a painful obedience. Understand that. Now, I imagine, I mean, just, just his life tells you it was a painful obedience because, again, of the scorn and the hatred and the malice and the betrayals that he experienced. And believe me, Jesus experienced all of those things because he was good. Because he was righteous. Because he was holy. That's why men despised him and hated him and rejected him. Because of those things. We think, in our minds, we think that to be around Jesus would be such a, oh, a wonderful experience. But the people who were around him were angry at him because of his holiness, because of his goodness. They despised him. So Jesus did not learn obedience the way we learned obedience, by correction. 
He didn't learn obedience by learning not to disobey. In the face of trial and temptation, he learned in practice and in pain what it means to obey, the cost of obedience. Because let's face it, is it not true that a high percentage of our own disobedience is because we're not willing to pay the price to be obedient? Is that not true? Is it not costly to us to be obedient? Huh? To do what God says? Is it not true that the path of least resistance quite often is disobedience? That's true. Listen to me. That's absolutely true. Watch your children. Pay attention to them. Because quite often their disobedience is disobedience of convenience. They do not wish to be inconvenienced, and obedience would be inconvenient. And we could point to many examples, many of the things we're called to do in the Christian life that are costly to us. It's easier just to be disobedient. Jesus learned the high cost, the pain, and loss of, this, of obedience. If he had bypassed all of that, if he had never experienced painful testing and temptation, he would not be a suitable savior for us. He must become like us to save us. He must experience what we experience. The obedience he learned through suffering made him a complete man. As this complete man, he could lift us out of our sin and raise us to walk in newness of life. But the Bible tells us very clearly that he was perfected through suffering. <laughs> he was perfected through suffering. Hebrews 2, and verse 10, verse we read earlier. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Notice the plural there, sufferings. Of course, he had no defects to eliminate, no need for, you know, pain is weakness leaving the body. There was no need for that, right? But through obedience and suffering, he became the perfect righteousness we needed for our salvation. I'll tell you why. What perfected, the perfection of it, was not that Jesus needed to be perfected, but that Jesus was tested and tried and shown to be perfect through suffering. Because in spite of the suffering, despite the difficulty, despite the high cost to Jesus Christ the man, he still was faithful and obedient to the Lord. We would say, well, yeah, of course it would be easy for him to be obedient, right? That's how we would think of it. The Bible is telling you that it cost Jesus to be obedient to the Father. He qualified himself to be our Savior by his suffering. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. How very different it would have been for us 
if at the end of his life, after the, the suffering of obedience, if Jesus had bypassed the cross. Without his suffering and death, his per perfect obedience of the Father would stand as a witness against us and would add to our judgment and condemnation. Once a man endured temptation without falling into sin, one man endured temptation without falling into sin, all the rest of the world would be condemned by that one man. His life would be a testimony against us. It would say God's requirement is not impossible. We would have resisted temptation. We could have resisted temptation and overcome it. His life would have added guilt to our guilt so that our damnation would have been fully justified. But Jesus, you know, did not come to condemn the world, right? But that the world through him might be saved. So after facing temptation and overcoming it, Jesus did not skip the cross. His perfect life was not enough to elevate us. If he just came by the way to be a moral example to us, then he would not have needed to go to the cross. But we must have both his perfect righteousness tested and tried and tempted and true. And we must have his sacrificial death on the cross. <clears throat> so after facing temptation and overcoming it, Jesus didn't skip the cross. In fact, Luke 24, 26, Jesus said this twice, in fact, in the same passage. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And then later, thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. 1 Peter 3 and verse 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Hebrews 5 verse 8, I read earlier. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Now whether we understand this or not, the suffering of Jesus Christ was central to our redemption. Jesus had to suffer. He could not merely lay down his life and die. His death could not be instantaneous, immediate. You know, sometimes we comfort ourselves. Somebody dies in a horrible accident and we comfort ourselves. Well, I think, you know, he died right away. We say that his death must have been immediate. And we comfort ourselves with that. At least he didn't suffer, we say. Jesus suffered. Every drop of blood that he shed was poured out of pain and agony and torment and torture. And that was necessary for our salvation. We see this expressed many ways in Scripture, whether in 
the garden when he prayed, or the plain statements of Scripture, or our understanding of the righteousness and justice of God. Jesus must suffer. He must suffer the pain of temptation. And he must suffer for our sins. Jesus entered into our world as a man so that he could do this. And then the third thing is, he came that he might be magnified. Now he was magnified in his resurrection, where he was declared to be the Son of God with power, as Romans 1 and verse 4 tells us. His suffering was the price he paid in order to obtain the resurrection. This is what Hebrews 13, verse 20 says. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. So the Bible is telling us that the God of peace raised Jesus from the dead through his shed blood. Remembering again that his blood was shed in pain and agony and torment. But it wasn't just the bleeding of Jesus that purchased our salvation. It was his bleeding to death that purchased our salvation. It was not enough that Jesus bleed. He needed to bleed and suffer and die. Those three things were necessary for our salvation. His bleeding as part of his dying. It was the death he suffered, the kind of death, and the bleeding and suffering of that death that enabled, in fact, the resurrection. Hebrews 13, 20 again says that the God of peace brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus through the blood of the everlasting covenant. So <clears throat> Jesus was not raised from the dead after he died, but through, or in fact the word, the, the Greek word there is the preposition "n," which can mean in his death or by means of his death. Literally, he is raised from the dead by means of the death that he died. Because of the way he died, and because especially his death was a satisfaction for our sin, God raised Jesus from the dead. The resurrection stands as a proof, in fact, that God was satisfied with the death of Jesus, that the death of Jesus, the suffering and bleeding and dying of Jesus in our place, satisfied God's demands so that our sins would be paid for, so that our sins could be pardoned because God poured out his wrath on our sins when they were laid on Jesus. That's the gospel. That's the gospel message. And again, the fact that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead proves that God was pleased with that sacrifice, that that sacrifice satisfied his demands for justice. So that 
His death was sufficient so that God was just in punishing sin. The resurrection declares to the world that God's wrath is satisfied. His death was an all-sufficient price, paid in full. And then we are glorified together with Jesus Christ. And this is what the Bible says in a number of places. I'll read you a few. Hebrews 2, verse 10 and 11, which we've been looking at. For it became him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For, listen, both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. So, <clears throat> Jesus suffered and bled and died, and his death was ours, so that his life could also be ours. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says it this way, But we all, with open face, beholding us in a glass, the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image, from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. We are magnified with Christ. We are exalted with Christ. We are glorified with Christ. Knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up also, uh, raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might, through the thanksgiving of many, redound to the glory of God. For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, Yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Isn't that good? That is a wonderful promise. 1 Peter 5 and verse 10. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, Settling. This is what God is doing. Jesus Christ died a death that was a satisfaction for our sins, sufficient to pay for our sins. God raised him from the dead, and God then pardons you and glorifies you by identifying you with Jesus Christ. By being with him in the resurrection, we too are glorified. First, God has ordained that we too should pass through a time of suffering as part of this process of glorification. The suffering and glory of Jesus sanctifies us so that we can also be glorified. So therefore, <clears throat> for all of this, here's the result of it. Because especially, and this is why I think that the gospel needs to be preached thoroughly and frequently to the people of God. All right? Because the result of it is what God intended. The result of it is the more clearly we see it, the more vividly uh, we understand it, the more we love our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what he wants. That's what he wants from you. In fact, this is, this is what salvation really amounts to. Salvation amounts to you saying, 
that that old life of sin that gave me so much satisfaction before is an affront, affront to God and hateful to him. And I will gladly give that up to follow Christ. And then to say, I love him so much that I too will suffer the inconvenience of obedience in order to show how much I love him. And that also is an important way that Satan is defeated. Because one of the things that Satan loves, and I, I love to tell you this, Satan loves to go to God and say, see so-and-so over there? He'd rather sin than please you. He prefers the temptations that I offer him to the good things that you have for him. And God loves to change that about you so that without imposing his will on you, he can say, you see that? You see that young person there? They willingly resist temptation and flee youthful lusts because they desire to please me. Now that happens because we learn to love God. Now I can preach at you that you ought to love God. And you'll walk out of here thinking, I ought to love God. <clears throat> but then you'll be faced with the same temptations not to. But if I hold up to you Christ crucified and risen, and if I can give you a good, clear picture of it, and if you can grow in your understanding, your grasp of the gospel, the result of that is that your love for God is going to abound more and more. Jesus said in John 8, verse 42, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, neither came I of myself, but he sent me. It is impossible to love the father without loving the son. His resurrection raises us who believe so that we are alive in Christ. And because we're alive in Christ, we also live and love him. Someone said the true children of God love his son as their desire and delight. They love Christ more than they love their parents or their own children. Matthew 10, 37. They gladly keep his commandments, John 14, 21. They willingly bow before his throne, Psalm 110, verse 1 through 3. They love Christ more than they love their lives in this world.